0: Darren Gabula, class of 1993, is a seasoned supply chain and operations management professional. He most recently served as the VP of Inventory at Owens & Minor, servicing the healthcare industry. He previously worked in successively senior roles at LG United Technologies and prior to receiving his MBA from MIT Sloan at Accenture as a consultant. He earned his BS in Quantitative Business Analysis with honors, a forerunner to the Modern Supply Chain Management degree from the Smeal College of Business in 1993. Darren joined Following the Gone to share his experiences coming to University Park from out of state, writing for the Collegian as a business major, in finding his path in business from STEM. Darren also shared how his thesis was beneficial to his career and what it was like as a consultant. He then shares a crash course in supply chain, from what it is to working as a generalist or specialist to leading teams and working with others both domestically and abroad. This episode is great for any scholar and particularly for those interested in supply chains, consulting, pursuing an MBA, or pursuing activities at Penn State outside of their major. His full bio and a detailed breakdown of topics discussed are available in the show notes on your podcast app. With that, Let's dive into our conversation with Darren Gabula following the gong. Joining me here today on Following the Gong is Darren Gabula. Darren, thank you so much for speaking with us today.
1: Yeah, it's great to be here, Sean. Thanks for the invitation. Really appreciate it. Of course, of course.
0: Now, if you're a regular listener, you know I always like to start with origin stories. Darren, how did you come to Penn State and what is now the Schreyer Honors College?
1: Yeah, so I'm actually from Baltimore, Maryland. So I grew up a huge Maryland Terps fan, who are now a member of the Big Ten, but back then it was ACC. So I remember every year that Penn State would just absolutely punish Maryland. So I grew up not being a huge fan of Penn State football, I must say. But when it came time to figure out where I wanted to go to school, I looked at a lot of different schools, and it actually came down to a choice between the Maryland Honors Program and the Penn State Honors Program. And so I set all those thoughts about football aside, visited both places. I liked the campus more, seemed like it had more to offer. And I think probably the, the final rationale was I had some friends going to Maryland, and I didn't know anyone going to Penn State. So I took the plunge. I figured, hey, I don't want to be stuck in kind of the high school days. So I went to Penn State and it worked out great.
0: Awesome. I imagine that for some students coming to Penn State because they're second, third, fourth generation Penn State really sticks out. And then there's other folks who are like, I'm going to strike out on my own. So perhaps you might relate to Darren on that. Yeah,
1: it worked out great.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I would say based on what we're going to talk about with your career, I think it did. Laying the groundwork for that, how did you come to find your major and what drew you to what was, at the time, it was called quantitative business analysis. I believe that's now morphed into the supply chain management major in the Smeal College of Business.
1: So it wasn't a direct path for me, and maybe some students can relate to this. I actually came into Penn State as a math major. I hadn't really been exposed to business. I knew of business concepts, but I knew that I really liked math. So as I was pursuing my math degree, I was able to take some business courses. And I actually became pretty interested in getting a business logistics minor. You know, that's obviously something that Penn State's known for. And as part of that journey, I was exposed to what was called QBA back then. And it really interested me because I saw it as the intersection of math and business, And so it was really, really exciting when I started to learn more about it, where you could actually model a production floor, or run experiments, all using math and statistics to come up and try and solve business problems. So that's really what drew me into it.
0: So you liked math and you liked business, but you also shared with me ahead of time that you were involved with, of all things, the Daily Collegian. Yeah. So how did right. you end up working there as a reporter when you ultimately ended up being a business major?
1: Yeah, and and Sean, I wish I had a good story about this one, but actually, one of my roommates, a good friend of mine still, poli sci major, he was going to the info session for Daily Collegian reporters, and he asked me if I wanted to go. I don't remember the exact circumstances, but I probably had an evening free. And so I went with him to the info session, became pretty intrigued, and and I ended up being assigned to be a science reporter of all things. So it was very interesting I learned how to take quick notes. I learned how to, you know, from my notes, pull out some key themes uh, from the information. And honestly, it taught me how to write better.
0: Can you talk a little bit about how the journalism writing translated to any kind of business writing that you've had in your career?
1: Absolutely. So, what we needed to do when we were writing articles is you need to have a hook in the beginning to make it interesting, and then you needed to be able to pull out the key points and then fill those in. And what I've really learned throughout my business career is that there's a lot of value in being able to bring together and synthesize and absorb a lot of information and then be able to pull out the key themes and then ultimately be able to tell a story or a narrative that makes sense for people who aren't familiar with it. So I think all of those I've used later and throughout my
0: career. I think that's really, really good insight there, Darren. You know, oftentimes I hear people say that, you know, like writing and communication, I I hate this term, but the soft skills that you don't necessarily have explicit classes in are the ones that employers are saying, I wish that students You know, our our entry level employees had X, Y, Z and it's it's these things. So, you know, you don't have to go write for the Daily Collegian or Onward State, but find opportunities to practice your writing. And obviously, a great opportunity to practice writing is your thesis. (laughs) right here in the honors college. And sometimes folks, they have a thesis, maybe they pick something completely out of left field, and maybe you don't ever use it again. But I think yours actually sounds like it was probably still relevant throughout your career. So can you tell us about it and both what you researched and learned and about how you've been using the skills and knowledge from it?
1: Yeah, I would I would love to. So just for reference, my thesis was a simulation of the Center County Solid Waste Authority recycling facility. So it's a bit of a mouthful, but basically I went and I was able to observe, do some time studies, calculations, and then ultimately a simulation analysis of the recycling facility at the time to model what would happen if different variables changed the volumes, the inputs, the contamination, different things within the building if they changed labor, if they got new technology, etc. And it was really fascinating. And I think, you know, we talked earlier what drew me to QBA, and it's been the same throughout my career. I'm really interested and fascinated by large, complex systems that have a lot of variables. And a lot of times throughout my career, and I think for many people listening, the answers to problems are not really clear cut. It's not always black or white. There are Different paths, different solutions. So, this was really the first time I had ever encountered a really complex system and problem that had no. Clear-cut solution. So ultimately, what my thesis required me to do, but it's you know a good metaphor for kind of how I operated my career was to try different options, to test hypotheses, and then figure out what was the best path forward. It may not have been a perfect path. Many times in business, there's no perfect path, and you have to choose the best path. So it really required that level of thinking and rigor, and it was great. Plus, I got a chance to learn a ton more about environmental issues uh, specifically recycling, but more broadly. And that's kind of continued in my interest throughout my life.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, with supply chain management operations, the environmental impact can be huge. And, you know, people often don't necessarily consider the end of life cycle or the kind of the downstream from the end user. Absolutely. You think about all the plastic packaging you get, so things to consider there. But we're not going to dive into all of those ramifications at the moment. There are plenty of classes you can take in our top rated supply chain program and create environmental courses, I'm sure, in Eberly in the College of Ag. So instead, we're going to talk about a really fun way to create some trash, and that is from a Penn State football tradition that you shared <laughs> with me that... I'm not familiar with, so I'm sure our students probably are not familiar with as well. Hopefully, we don't bring this back, but it is a nice piece of history, and I wanted you to have a chance to share this for some of our younger listeners uh, who maybe can learn a little bit of Penn State football tradition history from you.
1: Yeah, and I was pretty interested to find out that a lot of folks didn't know about this, so happy to be able to provide kind of some info on this. So The best way to explain this tradition of marshmallows at Penn State football games back in the day is a snowball fight. And most people have been in a snowball fight, especially at Penn State during the winter, right? So if you've ever been in a snowball fight, you know that you know the key is ammunition, and then just being able to to launch the snowballs. So you want to think about this as the entire student section being involved in one huge snowball fight. Except for instead of snowballs, there were marshmallows. And so the marshmallows, if you got hit, it didn't hurt too bad, and then you were actually able to pick it up and throw it again. For the most part, I will say a couple of fun facts about this. You know, if you were sitting down, you were pretty fine in the student section, but if you got up for any reason, um, you were a prime target. So that was uh, something that you had to think twice before you got out of your seat. And then also cold weather games, believe it or not, were better than warm weather games because, you know, the marshmallows would disintegrate more slowly. So actually you wanted to be in cold weather games. And I was thinking about this, Sean, probably if you go back to Penn State football games, kind of in the early, early nineties, there's going to be one corner of one end zone in front of the student section that's going to look like it's actually snowed in front of it or maybe even confetti and those are actually marshmallows that didn't hit their targets and ended up on the field so I'm not sure if anyone has video clips of that but it'd be pretty good to see.
0: I I am just flabbergasted by that and I can see why <laughs> our, our colleagues in intercollegiate athletics uh, banned that at some point along the way definitely probably a very there's enough trash that gets created during the games anyway from chicken baskets and, and water bottles that are sold so can't even imagine adding that into the Mix.
1: But it's it's fun to look back on.
0: Well, we do have a winning tradition, and when it comes to football, that's absolutely that's one of the more important things. Great, great people coming off of the field and hopefully putting up some W's in the win column. Now, moving into your career from mm-hmm. your time at Penn State, mm-hmm. can you talk about how you got into consulting based on your QBA degree and, and your experiences maybe any internships that you had at the time and advice that you have for students who are seeking those internships, co-ops, or those first roles coming out of Penn State? Yeah,
1: absolutely. So I did not have any internships. So I think it's probably an outstanding opportunity for students out there to be able to dip their toe into the workforce. And certainly I have, uh, as a leader in business, I've employed many interns, but I myself did not have an internship. So really my first exposure was through the Penn State Career Center, which was an outstanding resource. And I ended up interviewing in a number of different areas, but ultimately ended up being attracted to consulting. Like I was talking about before solving complex problems seemed very interesting to me. The other thing I liked about consulting, which I think is very true about supply chain and operations, is if you like variety, it's different every single day. Heck, it's different every single hour, right? So um, the idea of joining consulting and being able to go to different projects was very appealing to me. So I ended up joining Anderson Consulting, it was called at the time. Now it's called Accenture. And believe it or not, Sean, and we may talk about this more, but it was the lowest paying of the job opportunities I had coming out of Penn State. So obviously, I didn't choose it for money. I chose it because I thought it gave me the greatest opportunity to learn and develop my skills across a number of different areas. So what consulting really taught me was it taught me Discipline. It taught me how to communicate effectively with folks that I had just met. And it taught me really the importance of budgets. So I spent the first few years of my career in consulting. And for anyone who's interested in consulting, I would say um, certainly internships would be a great way to really dip your toe into that. And also think about what you want to do, where your interests lie. Because in consulting, there are of different areas that you can focus on and specialize in, and I'm sure that the Career Center can help guide you in that direction. And then the advice for people who are interviewing with consulting organizations, I would say is consulting organizations, in my experience, are looking for folks who are well-rounded, who are eager to achieve and succeed, because the consulting organizations are putting together teams quickly, and they need folks to be able to and deliver results quickly for their clients.
0: I think that is really good advice, Darren. And I'll give a quick plug. Obviously, there is the Penn State Career Services at U Park in the Bank of America Center. There are offices in each college across the University Park, as well as all of the campuses have resources. And of course, in the Honors College, we have Matt Ishler, our Director of Career Development. So, you know, make sure you're taking advantage of these opportunities no matter which college or campus you call home, as well as the opportunities in the Honors College. And, you know, Darren, you said that you had the opportunity to hire and supervise many an intern, I'm sure, over your Mm -hmm. career. Thinking back on those interns, what have you seen that set apart the really successful ones from the ones who maybe had an average or a lackluster experience that scholars should think about as they approach their internships or co-ops or other pre-professional experiences, maybe even in student organizations that they're leading?
1: Yeah, it's it's a great question. And I think it boils down to a couple of things, at least that I've seen. So one is somebody who's willing to jump in and learn and contribute as quickly as they can. It doesn't mean that you're going to be an expert on day one. In fact, it's exactly the opposite. But for the folks who are willing to jump in, roll up their sleeves, contribute and learn, those are the folks who are going to be the most successful. Secondly, I would say the other thing that I've really seen in successful interns or co-ops or even folks starting their career is people who are willing to ask for more. So, if you are given an assignment in an internship and, you know, you finish it Faster, you know, you can certainly ask for more. If it's asked to be at a certain level, you could certainly add to it and provide additional analysis, thought, recommendations. What's most important, I think, early on in your career and especially in internships is getting exposed to things, learning. And so the more that you can get exposed and the more that you can contribute and learn what works and what doesn't work because not everything's going to be successful, the further ahead you will be. And frankly, by doing those two things, it's then the attitude that you know, the company or organization will see coming from you and really be interested in giving you more opportunity.
0: That is really good insight. And I think there's probably a balance, right? Like got to make sure you handle what you've been given before you ask for more, right? But if you can do that, not a bad strategy to kind of set yourself apart, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's an excellent disclaimer. I probably should have said that. As we would say, those are the table stakes, right? You got to be able to deliver on what's expected out of you. And to go a little further afield, I think just broadly in supply chain, but also in operations and in business right the way i've been successful and i've seen other people be successful is you have to meet your commitments when you meet your commitments that's the beginning and then you can really build upon that so that's really critical and that's frankly what i learned in consulting we were given a certain budget we had to meet that budget and frankly if we didn't meet the budget we had to write variance memos as to why we didn't meet the budget and sit in front of the boss and explain it and i can tell you you know coming right out of college as a you know young 20 something that was a real good lesson that i learned very early in my career
0: so darren i think sometimes a piece of advice that gets given out is the adage to the effect of under promise over deliver so what are your thoughts on on that piece of advice i think it's good advice
1: it's it's an adage for a reason right I will say though that one of the pleasures maybe of becoming someone who delivers in an organization is that the expectations sometimes aren't set by you. Sometimes they're set by others and they, you know, can be high. But I think that is still something that you want to be able to do is to be able to over deliver and as we've been talking about, in my experience, that's how you get more opportunity and more responsibility throughout your career.
0: So one of the things you talked about was in you know, in these early career roles, especially in an internship, is learning. And another way that you can learn is something you and I have both done, which is you go back to school and you get mm-hmm. an MBA. And in your case, you stopped out and did it full time. Mm -hmm. So how did you make that decision and decide where to attend? There's so many great options out there. Of course, there's Penn State. There's a lot of other great schools. I know we've had represented here on Following the Gone, like Penn and Michigan and Harvard and, in your case, MIT. So explain your thought process, both on the decision to go back to school, stop out, stop making money for a little bit, Mm -hmm. and specifically on where you elected to go.
1: Yeah, so when when I was in consulting, I had a really great opportunity to learn a tremendous amount. I had leadership opportunities and I really, really enjoyed it. And I enjoyed helping our clients be successful and implement successfully. But as I was sitting on the consulting side, the one thing that I learned that I was missing was the ownership of daily execution. So as a consultant, whatever your project is, whether it's a strategic analysis, an IT system, a financial analysis, ultimately you have your deliverable and then you sort of wait to see if there are other opportunities. So from what I saw, I really wanted to be able to take that next step from the implementation to the ownership going forward. And so, even though, you know, my consulting career was great and I was on a great path, I ultimately decided to almost even go back to some of my Penn State roots and wanted to get involved in industry. So, I decided that the best way to do that, to change a career was to go back to school. And so, I knew that I wanted to focus on operations supply chain manufacturing. So, you know, I was looking around at schools applied obviously to a number of them, but my philosophy with grad school is, you know, to go to the best school in your field. And so when I had an opportunity to go to MIT, it just made a ton of sense for me.
0: So, for those who are maybe less familiar, obviously it's the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, and so you think probably a lot of good STEM programs. But if you you know read a lot of the literature, a lot of you know there's Harvard Business Review and a lot of MIT Sloan articles as well are typically in your in your courses for business. But uh, what specifically made them stand out uh, in the supply chain space for you?
1: Yeah, so you know I think it is that relationship with sort of the technical STEM side of the school, which then ties into business through manufacturing, and then sort of goes over into operations, supply chain, economics, etc. So, you know, I think if you say MIT Sloan with manufacturing or operations worldwide, it's sort of, you know, understood that it's a really good education and really good school. And then it provided an entree into, different programs out
0: of grad school. You and I chatted before this, and one of the things that really stuck out to me was that you mentioned that you actually took a pay cut coming (laughs) out of B-School compared to what you had been making as a consultant before going back to school. And I know you said you really wanted to get into kind of the hands-on side of things. How did you handle both the philosophical side of that and taking a pay cut on the mental side, but then also the logistical side of, you know, changing your lifestyle and different things, and also an entirely different type of work that you're doing now. Walk us through that transition.
1: Yeah, so it was a very interesting transition, to say the least. I think, you know, maybe when we had talked before, I I joked that I might be one of the only people to come out of that program and graduate and take a significant pay cut. But it's because I really knew what I wanted to do with my career at the time. I can't say that I had the next 10, 20 years mapped out, but I definitely knew what I wanted to do at the time. And I think we'll probably talk a little more about it. But I guess what I've learned throughout my career, and this was just one example of it, is that if you execute, if you do a good job, the positions and the money comes to you. So to be honest with you, at that time, I wasn't, I didn't have that clarity. So I don't want folks to think that, <laughs> that they should have that clarity either, but I, from my perspective now and and what I've learned. So when I decided to go back to school to change my career, I knew that it was going to be a pay cut. That I did know because the consulting field and what I was in was relatively lucrative, especially with what I was doing. And it's not as if manufacturing operations could necessarily compete with that from the start, right? So I sort of expected... That going in, I did have opportunities to go into other fields, but ultimately I ended up joining a leadership program at United Technologies, which... You know now has been uh, split apart and most of it lives on as RTX or Raytheon Technologies and there's Otis and Carrier. But at the time, they had one of the best leadership programs out there um, and it was a rotational program. And what I really wanted, similar to what I had talked about kind of before in my advice, is exposure to a lot of different things. So I knew folks who were experts in manufacturing. I knew folks who were experts in distribution, but I didn't really know anyone who was both so I wanted to become at least that was my goal an expert in both manufacturing and distribution and this was the best program for me so I joined that program and sought the opportunities from there
0: so Darren you just mentioned two key parts of supply chain and obviously supply chain is very critical to how we live our lives in in, in the modern era and it's also I would say, pretty misunderstood or simplified especially after three and a half years of headlines starting with the pandemic and toilet paper and surpluses, shortages that we've Mm -hmm. had in different things over the past few years and it's obviously not just a subject of whole classes but entire programs like our top rated one here at Penn State. All that being said about simplifying it, can you simplify and give us a crash course on what exactly supply chain means? Um, I know if you're a supply chain student, this is probably going to be a little redundant for you but for those who are maybe exploring their options in the Smeal College business or just curious on the topic, you know, humor us with the overly simplified explanation of what this field is?
1: Sure, I'd be happy to. So the best description of supply chain is all of the activities that go from raw material to then ultimately put a finished product in the hands of the end customer, which would either be you or me, or it could be a business, right? So there's a lot in that. So to unpack it a little bit, you start with raw materials, but then there are manufacturing, call them transformation steps that go in. There's wholesale, there's, you know, many times retail, depending on how the supply chain is structured, there could be distribution in there, and then it gets to the end customer. So that's sort of probably the linear supply chain. But then I would add to that, Sean, that There's all the transportation, handling, inventory management in between. And then, as you can imagine, incredibly complex systems, global supply chains, et cetera. There are also many, many other functions that I would say, you know, depending on one's definition are either included in supply chain or in operations, but, you know, different functions like customer service or warranty or aftermarket support, et cetera, if you think about the economy, we learned it during the pandemic, the supply chain is absolutely critical. If it wasn't for the supply chain, almost everything that we have right now in our modern lives, we wouldn't have. But to give you kind of a real life example, I actually did an internship in my graduate studies. And so in that internship, I was the continuous improvement manager on a jet engine assembly line for fighter jets, which was a pretty cool job, by the way. But if you think about the supply chain, there are for fighter jets, there's all the raw materials to make all the components. If We think about one example, the fan blades. So somebody needs to then procure the supplies for that, um, the suppliers to then produce the fan blades to then you need to transport them to the actual jet engine manufacturer who then has all of their processes and inventory management, which then that needs to go to the jet manufacturer, et cetera, and all the steps in between. So I know you asked for a simplified definition I'm not sure if I met that uh, mark, but that's sort of a broad overview of supply chain.
0: No, I think that was a good four minute version of that. And even going back to your thesis, you know, talking about what happens when products hit the end of their useful life and with refuse and recycling and Mm -hmm. second lives and secondhand markets like yard sales and flea markets, even for consumer goods, right?
1: Yeah. And I mean, there's even a formal area, supply chain with reverse logistics and dealing with returns and all that processing. So, absolutely.
0: So, if you're a supply chain major, thank you for bearing with us. If you're not, I hope you learned a little bit there, helped give you some context for all the headlines you've seen over the past few years. Now, obviously, you focus particularly in the manufacturing and the operations component, which is kind of in the middle there because you've Mm got to get your raw components. You might Mm -hmm. mine things, logging agriculture for food products. And and then obviously you have to transform things into different parts and there can be many stages of that. What could be at one point is an end product, then becomes an input, like you said, with the fan blades. One company, they make the fan blades, that's the end product. Next one, now it's an input and a component part, right? You talked, you wanted to be an expert in both the manufacturing and the distribution. So there can be specialist roles and generalist roles in supply chain. So can you talk about the pros and cons of both approaches to a career in those areas and how scholars can kind of pick up things that can be helpful in both of those areas?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. So, just like in many fields, as you said, there are specialists and generalists. And so, from my perspective, it's really does something really interest you so much that that's a particular area or function and supply chain and operations. It's true, but it's true in many other fields as well where you just specialize. So, you know, an example in supply chain could be logistics. There are experts in international logistics that are kind of spend their entire careers managing shipments of products, the relationship with suppliers, brokers, etc., getting products from, for example, Asia to the United States. That's a specialist and it requires a lot of very specialized knowledge in that case of exports, imports, suppliers, etc. Another example would be inventory management, where one becomes an expert in managing inventory levels to have the best possible cash flow for any organization, while also simultaneously having the best service level for customers. Because the holy grail in that space is having 100% service level with almost no inventory now i say the holy grail because it's theoretical but any you know lean practitioner listening to this or continuous improvement would say that inventory is one of the key wastes So, you know, you want to keep your inventory down and there's a very specialized field there. So there are a lot of folks, and I would say even the majority of folks that I've worked with in my career end up specializing in a particular area. But then there are generalists, and I guess I would categorize myself as a generalist in this, where you end up being exposed to a lot of different areas you obviously work with lean on and in many cases lead the specialists, but for the broader benefit of the organization and business. I would say though that this is more an evolution than probably a choice. As I said before, I didn't necessarily know you know, when I was younger what I know now and have the same perspective. I just went with a goal of trying to be exposed to as many things as possible and learn and deliver in different areas and certainly was up for learning more and being more and more challenged. And I think The generalists in supply chain would end up being in the VP of operations, VP of supply chain roles versus like a VP of transportation or VP of inventory.
0: And speaking of VPs, that's a title you've held a few times in your career. So can you walk us just through how you've advanced in your career? You started after after B-School, you did your leadership program with United Technologies which obviously you said was trying to split apart into some different companies and you got to experience different parts there. So how did you take those programs or cut and dry? You do so many rotations through over a certain amount of time, then you've got to get put into one of the tracks. So how did you opt into one of those and begin kind of progressing up the ladder?
1: Yeah, it's it's a good question. I ended up, like I said, I was interested in manufacturing and distribution. So that program in particular had three rotations. I did one in each of those. And I also did decided that I wanted to do an international rotation. And, you know, there's another theme in my career, which... I think it's important for me to be able to talk about which is take on tough challenges take on you know try and solve your boss's biggest problem right if you can identify and solve your boss's biggest problem then that's really going to get you additional opportunities so i wanted to be able to do an international rotation and this was the time of nafta so for those folks who aren't aware of what nafta is that was the north american free trade agreement and basically the u.s canada and mexico formed one trading block. And so it made it a lot easier. And a lot of production was moving to Mexico. is basically what was going on at the time. I decided, you know, there were more glamorous opportunities to go to Paris, to go to Hong Kong. But I was the only one in that particular leadership program that raised my hand and said, I'll go to Mexico so that I can learn more. So I went, I went to Mexico And I also uh, decided that I wanted to get more finance exposure. So that rotation was actually in financial planning and analysis, because my logic was if I was going to be speaking another language, which I am not inherently fluent in, then at least I didn't have to translate numbers. So I ended up going through those rotations. Ultimately, you had to place out in the program. So I ended up going into the internal distribution company at Carrier at the time, did different things, different opportunities as they came my way. I led the continuous improvement rollout in the distribution organization. I ended up negotiating a logistics contract for about $60 million that I didn't really have prior to getting that assignment, any experience doing. Um, So those are kind of, that's an example of things you learn on the fly. And then I really wanted the opportunity to move out into the field or, you know, as some would call go to a line leadership versus staff leadership function. So, I had an opportunity to be an operations manager in the Mid-South, so moved there, and that I had oversight over distribution and warranty and customer service and logistics, et cetera, all the functions in a distribution organization. Ultimately, had the opportunity to start up a distribution company within United Technologies in Southern California, and then was asked to take over the IT organization for a while, take over the production planning organization. Organization and the customer service organization there. And then someone who I had worked with had gone to work for LG, and LG. For those folks who are familiar with TVs, et cetera, a huge conglomerate known for electronics, but it's actually one of the largest air conditioning manufacturers in the world. And so they had a startup division in the U.S. I was recruited over there. They said we could really use your help, built that up as a startup organization from four people to about 60 and you know would take on more challenges as they were put on my plate. And then I moved over to uh, a large medical distributor Owens and Miner, um, when I got a call from somebody else I used to work with who uh, said they could use my help as well. So worked through whether it was distribution or logistics. I ran their consulting group for a while, ran their an offshoot of a software group for a while. So just been able to take the generalist skills and apply them in different areas. So
0: Darren, I'm looking at your resume as we're talking and I can't help but notice you worked for a medical supplier company beginning in, oh, let's see here, 2017, and then moved into yeah. a distribution role in 2019.
1: That's right. So
0: I'm sure you had an interesting few months in 2020. Can you talk us through what the supply chain and in, in medical equipment was like in the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And then- you know Sean as you said and for folks already you know in supply chain they'll appreciate this but for others who aren't they certainly got exposed to the importance of supply chain during this time so yes i was working for Owen's a minor, which is uh, one of the three largest medical surgical distributors in the country. So probably a third of the market, hundreds of hospital systems are their customers, thousands of hospitals, and ultimately having to deliver gowns gloves, everything to be able to, masks to keep those hospitals running. So I was actually in charge of all United States distribution at the time, both the distribution centers and logistics. And I can tell you, it was one of the most challenging, but also most rewarding times in my career because of the importance of what we were doing. But there were various challenges that we dealt with. First of all, supply started slowing from China for those folks who may not remember China started restricting some of their exports so the government actually had to step in and was airlifting some supplies I'm not sure if everyone knows this from China to the United States and we actually worked with the federal government to coordinate getting those supplies as quickly as we could from the aircraft through our system to the hospitals but then the other thing that we had to deal with since we were in Uh, critical industry supporting hospitals, we did not Go remote. We did not work from home. We actually had 40 distribution centers across the United States that we had to keep staffed and up and running through the COVID pandemic. So I can tell you, I remember exactly where I was when I got a call that we had our first COVID case in one of our distribution centers. And an interesting quick anecdote here if you remember, we were obviously serving hospitals. So this was in March of 2020. So No one really had experience with COVID. So we actually shut down our distribution center. We brought in a company to deep clean it for in like 12 hours. We had to install testing across the nation relatively quickly. And then we were up and running again, but it was very disruptive to the hospital because this was the distribution center that actually served hospitals in Manhattan. So folks remember those pictures and when we shut down and then explained it to our hospital, customers, they basically said to us, well, we have 60 COVID cases that we're dealing with right now and we don't shut down. So that was a pretty stark reminder. You learn things along the way. And after that, we did not shut a distribution center at all from COVID cases. And so we had daily COVID updates on cases. We had clear procedures on cleaning and quarantine and everything. And we just had a lot of vigilance. And thankfully, you know, we were able to continue to supply hospitals and get through it.
0: Nothing like putting those those uh, scholar problem-solving skills to use in a time when you really, really needed to, right? Yeah,
1: absolutely. Like I said earlier in our conversation, you know, there are a lot of problems that don't have clear answers. And this was an experience I had never had, but none of my colleagues or anyone else had ever had. So we were sort of working through it and learning as we went.
0: And speaking of learning, yet again, one of the things that you shared with me was some cool opportunities. Obviously, you talked about Mexico, but LG is based Mm -hmm. out of the Republic of Korea or South Korea, as you may know Mm -hmm. it. And one of our mission tenets is building a global perspective. So can you talk about working with those international components of roles, the cultural pieces, every country and even parts of different countries like ours have different cultures around business and how you interact and how you maybe even if you have family and you can integrate them into those experiences.
1: When I went international with United Technologies, we actually moved to Mexico. So my wife and I lived in Mexico for about a year. So I was the only American at Carrier Mexico. So it was quite an immersive experience. It was incredibly rewarding. And I guess what I learned from those times is it's important to be able to respect the culture to learn about the different cultures. Not all cultures interact in business the same way. So I I know that Penn State has a very international focus, but probably a lot of folks listening to this are American. So we, you know, we have a certain way we think about business or, you know, addressing problems. And I'm sure everyone appreciates it's not the same way everywhere. So the one thing that, you know, I learned to be successful is being able to really appreciate the environment that you're in, figuring out how to be successful in that environment in business. And honestly, trying to speak some of the language goes a long way. So after Carrier and United Technologies, as you said, I went to LG. So I spent quite a bit of time over in South Korea working with that Leadership team. The United States is obviously a very important market um, to many international companies, including LG. As we would like to say, we got a lot of attention and a lot of help. And so I think the key, again, is understanding cultural differences, what works, what doesn't work. And listen a lot more than you speak, depending on one's perspective. When you're dealing with international business, it's really important to understand where other people are coming from before you start figuring out how you want to really approach a situation and be able to work together through it.
0: Absolutely. They're just reading some basic things. You know, sometimes there's differences in terms of punctuality, speed of relationship building, gift giving that varies across different cultures. And that's a whole extra layer of complexity that you have to add. In addition to getting the supplies that you need or the distribution that Mm -hmm. you need, you have to figure out what are those differences and how are you going to blend those?
1: Right. And I would say for folks, students who are listening to this, who are interested in international business. It was one of the things I actually looked for in a lot of companies that I was interested in. And so whether you get an opportunity to work internationally, that's certainly very exciting. And you can live there and really immerse yourself in it. But for those folks who don't necessarily have that opportunity in supply chain, especially there are opportunities to work with global suppliers, partners in other countries, being able to learn from them and really work through the complexities there, I think is an outstanding opportunity. And that honestly will only serve you better as you go throughout your career, just being able to deal with different situations and different cultures and learning about others and and listening more than you speak. Amen to that, Darren.
0: And, you know, we've talked about the A, academic excellence. We've talked about the B, building a global perspective. And obviously with people, there's C, creating opportunities for leadership and civic engagement. And as we've mentioned, you've had quite a few of these senior roles and you've had to lead teams, build teams. As you said, you took one group from four to 60 people and team members. So how did you approach leading teams and learning those, again, not my, not a phrase I like, but the soft skills, the relational skills to complement all of the technical acumen that you've built up over the years?
1: What I've learned over over time and what has really served me well is understanding business is all about people right? Maybe it seems obvious, but it's important to remind ourselves. So first and foremost, as a leader, if you respect your people and have a genuine interest in them, it really matters. And, you know, one thing I've always gone out of my way to do is is thank people. It costs you nothing except for effort. And honestly, it really matters. So, you know, especially in my roles where I would lead hundreds and thousands of people, I didn't have an opportunity to speak to everyone all the time, right? So when I was in front of people in one of our facilities, I would do my best to walk the floor, talk to people and personally thank them for what they were doing. Now, if you ask me, did they all know who I was? No. But did it matter? No, because it wasn't about me being known. It was about them knowing that someone from leadership thanked them for what they were doing and that what they were doing really mattered to the company and the customers. So when I would take over an organization or a function. You know, I would do my best to speak to all the people that were reporting to me and more broadly, if I could, and ask them, you know, what was going well, what was going badly, and what ideas did they have to improve? And honestly, it gave me way more insight than anything I could have developed on my own. And if you then take that and you start working through some opportunities to improve things, people notice and they notice because they've been heard and you are taking action. That doesn't mean everything's easy. That doesn't mean everything's achievable. But you are taking action, which means that they were heard and they were listened to. So I think finally, as I think about senior leadership or frankly, any level of leadership. Leadership, it's not that it's easy, but in my experience, it doesn't need to be tough. When I think about leadership and people ask me about it, I tell them the way to lead effectively is to set clear expectations of what's expected. And this could be a 3,000 person organization, or it could be a team working on a last project. If you're the leader, you want to talk to people, set clear expectations, communicate openly, make sure everyone has what they need to succeed, whether it's tools, whether it's training, and then be open to listening and be interested in them as people. And so everybody knows where you're headed. You know that they have what they need to get there and they know that they're supported. So it doesn't mean that everything is perfect and Again, it doesn't mean that leadership is easy, but it doesn't need to be very difficult.
0: I think that's really insightful. Darren, Early in our conversation, you mentioned coming out of MIT Sloan, you didn't necessarily have a 20-year plan, but we're in the back end of your career, and you're heading into kind of an early retirement, you've been able, you've had a good career and you've been able to leverage some opportunities to step out of industry for a little bit. And if a student wants to retire early so that they can travel or pursue other passion projects, you know, what could they be doing now in their early twenties to set themselves up to do that? And then what do you plan to do with your early retirement?
1: Yeah, I've gotten uh, this question a lot recently, Sean. So I think in terms of what advice I would give folks is, and we talked a little bit about this, but professionally, I think meet your commitments. If you develop a reputation for execution, and whether it's in supply chain or frankly, in my experience, could be in any area of business or other organizations, pretty soon you'll get more and more opportunities and responsibilities, and then you'll probably advance your career faster than a lot of your peers. But I would also say, especially for those folks who are still in school, learn as much as you can about finance and investing. So this is especially true for the folks who are at Penn State now. So I would say for you personally, but also your career, learn about finance, investing, and then really, the sooner you can start investing, the better off you will be. And I think there's this old adage that it's not about timing the market, it's about time in the market. So you want to start as soon as possible and then take some chances in your own personal portfolio while you're building your professional portfolio with roles with compensation uh, and opportunities,
0: And this is a great chance to give a shameless plug for our colleagues and the resource over in the Sokolov Miller Financial Literacy Center. Great resource for all Penn State students. You don't have to be in Trier. It's open to all Nittany Lions. So go check that out. And then
1: as for me, Sean, you know, I like to tell people uh, the best way to describe me right now is i'm a professional investor slash student i've uh, started taking classes at a local university again lifelong learner you know i'm interested in a lot of things history economics etc i uh spend time obviously managing investments uh traveling as much as I can, and who knows what the future holds. I have a passion for financial education, um, which I've sort of developed over time. Uh, The environment, we've talked a little bit about that, and also food banks. So uh, looking for ways to continue to give back. And then, you know, for me, we'll see what the future holds.
0: And I don't know if this has come up in our conversation earlier, but you are located, you know, you talked about you lived in Mexico, you did some work in South Korea, but you're in a city that I would not include in a list of quote unquote typical locations that a lot of our alumni end up in. Can you just give a little plug for the city and, you know, kind of what it's like being a Penn Stater in a location that's not the typical Philly, Pittsburgh, DC, New York, Boston kind of locations that a lot of our alumni, quite frankly, that's where they go.
1: Right. So we live in central Virginia in the Richmond, Virginia area. So there aren't any specific alumni groups, but I do have access to the D.C. alumni organization. And then certainly there are a lot of ways virtually, obviously, to stay involved with Penn State as well over time.
0: Excellent. That is really helpful. You know, no matter where you go, Penn State can go with you. We've learned a lot from the pandemic and how to engage with you all. Once you graduate virtually, you know, you don't have to live in one of these major markets. Mm-hmm. Um, there are great opportunities to plug in with alumni no matter where you live. Now, Darren, wrapping up our conversation, What kind of questions about be it supply chain, manufacturing, operations, organizational leadership, or edible projectiles that I haven't <laughs> asked about uh, in our conversation that I should have, or yeah. maybe put another way, like you know, if you're talking to interns or student mentees or a business journalist, what do you often get asked about that I just, due to my own level of knowledge, didn't think to ask about?
1: So we've talked about some of them, just to hit a couple, and then and then there's a few we haven't. I touched on this, but I, my advice to anyone early in their career or an internship is figure out your boss's biggest problem and solve it, right? And it doesn't matter if you're in supply chain, operations, marketing, finance, and anywhere. I I think that's key because that will get you more opportunity. But what we haven't really talked about, in addition to the leadership that we discussed, is for folks in operations or supply chain, but I would say even more broadly nowadays, get involved in the continuous improvement program at whatever organization where you're working for an internship or in your career. And many times, you know, it's Six Sigma, it'll be referred to as Lean, some companies have, you know, their own name for the program, but it's very important nowadays, is in, obviously, business in terms of being able to continuously improve things that are going on inside the business. But it's also going to teach you a way of thinking that will serve you throughout your career and will also allow you to stand out from your peers. So if you're the one person of your team who's really interested in continuous improvement, I promise you, whatever organization you're involved in, you will get an opportunity to learn new skills and to be exposed to different things. The other thing we've touched on a little bit, but I would say more directly, I think it's critically important nowadays especially folks early in their career, get comfortable with financials and data and be able to do data analysis. So, you know, this will prove invaluable in whatever you're working on, whatever your field is. And the more comfortable you can get, the better with both financials and data because it's going to allow you to see things that others may not see. It'll allow you to be able to ask questions that others maybe aren't asking. And ultimately, it'll allow you to make recommendations that others probably aren't going to be able to make. And so my final piece of advice when I'm asked about this is, and I see this honestly a lot with junior analysts or folks early on in their consulting career, if you're doing a large analysis, especially related to like revenue or cost, make sure you do a sanity check on your numbers. Like Will it pass the sniff test? Does this make sense? Does it smell right? And then be prepared to go one level below wherever your boss is going to go because expect that you're going to get questions on it. You know, the way I would prepare for meetings uh, or big presentations is I would treat them like I was preparing for a final for the folks, you know, who can relate to that. And so you want to be prepared with everything. And again, that's how you build a reputation for being able to execute and being able to add value and get. One. More opportunity.
0: I think that is all really, really helpful advice, Darren. So thank you. This is going to be our wrap-up questions here. What would you say is your biggest success to date? And this is your chance to brag about something that you're very proud of.
1: My biggest personal success has been, and I mentioned it in passing, but I had the pleasure of leading a, a small team that had to start up distributor and. Southern California when I worked at Carrier. And Southern California is actually, I think it's the second or maybe third largest air conditioning market in the world. People can probably relate to that. And Carrier decided that they were going to start their own distributor there. And so we had 90 days to go from four people arriving at LAX to having 20 buildings, hundreds of people on staff, product, and actually making deliveries to air conditioning companies so that they could continue to supply the Southern California market. So I would say in between the 20-hour days plus having to travel all around Southern California and you know hire hundreds of people and be able to ship product within 75 days ahead of time was a huge success for the organization. So that was pretty fun to be a part of.
0: That is that that must have been incredible too and <laughs> big relief when that
1: was over absolutely and in fact you know we won some internal awards uh, with the company not just me but obviously a lot of the other folks but what was most exciting was to see kind of the excitement with the entire team of being able to share in the success to be able to support the customers because people don't really think about air conditioning not unlike medical supplies can be you know life and death in in uh, some climate, so it's critically important.
0: So on the flip side of that, Darren, what would you say is the biggest transformational learning moment or mistake that you made in your career, and most importantly, what you took out of it and integrated into your experiences?
1: In a different portion of my career with Carrier, I had an opportunity to become a regional operations manager. And at that time, there were two different regions open. One was the Mid-South, which I mentioned, and the other one was the Northeast. And the Northeast was widely regarded as the The best run region had the number one metrics, et cetera. And the Mid-South was widely regarded as the worst run region, um, had the worst metrics, almost uh, bottom in everything. And when I was thinking about it and sort of similar to a lot of our discussion, Sean, I was actually asked to go to the Northeast by the incumbent manager of the Northeast. But instead, I chose to go to the Mid-South, um, which was, I won't say the bad news bears, but we had a lot of opportunity and I knew the folks there. Uh, so I remember in my first month after I talked to everyone, I put up a slide in front of everyone that our goal was to be number one and or number two in all the key metrics, whether it was customer, operational financial in two years and seemed really audacious well we were able to become one or two in all the areas within a year and it wasn't because of my skill but rather it was because of the team that was already there that wasn't necessarily appreciated wasn't being you know supported the way they needed to be and once you know I was able to help them the team was able to perform to get it the organization to one or two and all the areas. So I think what I really learned about that is if you take a hard path, but you have a plan and you know, you know, how you can work with others to succeed, then a lot of times, you know, that's the more rewarding path, whether it's in one's career, but probably in one's personal life as well.
0: That is really, really good insight, Darren. Now, just some fun questions here at the end. Are there any professors or friends from your days at Penn State and in the, in the Scholars Program that you wanted to give a shout-out to?
1: Yeah, so... You know, some of my thesis advisors, I, I'm not sure if the I, they're probably not still at Penn State, but Professor Holly Lewis and Professor Dave Christie were two of my great thesis advisors that helped me um, through that. And then, as I mentioned, when I came to Penn State, I didn't know anyone. And uh, I actually fell in with a great group of friends. Uh, they were all fellow scholars and we had a great time together. So, yeah, Pepper Santa Lucia who was in poli-sci. Paul Casper, who was in accounting. Tommy Chang, who was in pre-med, who's now a medical doctor. And Stefan Biniowski, who was in aerospace engineering, who's now a PhD. All of us uh, had a great time together. So I wouldn't have been the same, obviously, without all those folks.
0: Kudos to them and, and to your group. And it sounds like you're all still friends. So that's awesome. Yeah. You've given a lot of great advice in our time here together. So Darren, as we're wrapping up our time, can you leave us with some final advice for students to make the most of their time at Penn State and in the Honors College like you did?
1: My final advice for folks in the Honors College is explore classes and topics that interest you. Like I shared a little bit about my journey. I didn't know where I was going to end up. One of the benefits of Penn State is you can expose yourself to many different topics. You can take classes in, you know, many different disciplines. So explore classes and topics that interest you because they may just help define your journey or redefine it. And on a related note, don't be afraid to do things that are outside of your path. I didn't necessarily plan on becoming a reporter for the Collegian, but it really helped me. And, you know, as I was just mentioning, some of my uh, old friends from Penn State make some great friends along the way. And I think in the Honors College and then broadly in Penn State, it's it's a wonderful community, tremendous folks. You have the great opportunity to meet people from all over in all, kind, in all different disciplines. And as I went through, my friend's, each one of us was in a different area, and it just made it that much more interesting. So, yeah, just continue to make those connections. They'll serve you personally throughout your life.
0: Excellent. Now, are there any other fun Trier, University Scholar, Atherton, Simmons stories that you wanted to share that didn't come up?
1: I lived in Atherton Hall for a couple of years and ended up living in one of the rooms on the ground floor that actually opened to one of the courtyards and so we would have lots of impromptu wiffle ball games and I will tell you that those courtyards I'm not sure if they're official dimensions for a wiffle ball uh, field but it felt like it and you really have a pretty awesome brick home run wall that you have to get over so you know and for folks who are there at Atherton if you're not playing wiffle ball in the courtyards you know that might be something you want to look into.
0: I agree and I think I've seen some wiffle balls at one of the downtown kind of markets. So if you're looking to rectify (laughs) that situation, you may be able to go down there. Now, Darren, how can a scholar reach out to you if they want to connect with you and pick your brain further on any of the topics that we've discussed today?
1: So probably the best way is if people just want to reach out to me on LinkedIn. i um, happy to make connections, help folks any way I can. Uh, certainly, and if we can establish that connection, then obviously I can, you know, share more information about contact.
0: Excellent. And obviously one of the unique things at Penn State is something we're known for. The supply chain is, at least for certain components, is pretty simple because the cows they're right on <laughs> campus, so a lot of the raw inputs don't have to travel particularly far. And of course, I'm talking about the Berkey Creamery. And as we always do here, the fun question at the end, Darren, if you were a flavor of Berkey Creamery ice cream, which of those flavors would you be? And most importantly, why would you be that flavor as a scholar alum?
1: So I think this is my favorite question, Sean. I, I like this. So I, I have to admit, I did spend some time on this, right? Because you could go with your favorite flavor you could go with you know other reasons where i ended up was lion tracks So vanilla, peanut butter cups, and chocolate swirl. So first of all, it's great flavors. Who doesn't love chocolate, peanut butter cups, and vanilla? But really, when I think about my career, I think about supply chain, I think about operations. You have to have some structure to it, but it's also a blend of a lot of different things. So I will admit I don't know much about making ice cream. but. I would imagine if you mix it too much, it's not going to end up the right way, etc. So it's one of those ice creams that has to have the right structure. It has to be blended properly. And there's an overall complexity the same way there is in operations and supply chain.
0: That is a great rationale. And I love that you you thought through that. And we have another one we're going to chalk up in the tally for team menu. So great great choice there darren i love it Uh, after doing so many of these we've got team wpsu coffee break team alumni swirl and team the rest of the menu so and who's leading i haven't totally tallied it up this is all anecdotal i really need to do some data analysis on these flavors but it's hard to tell it's kind of an even split i think between the three of them so but you know when one of the categories is most of the menu
1: So I don't know if I should feel good or bad about that, but we'll take it. Team I think menu. you should. I, I
0: don't. I think you may be the first line tracks, or maybe, or or at, at absolute worst, I think the second person okay. who picked it. So I'll it's take a it. that one's not a frequent flyer we'll here. So it. I'm. I always like hearing new ones. Darren, thank you so much for joining. I know. I learned a lot about supply chain. I hope you listening, even if you're a supply chain major, learned a lot. And if you weren't, I definitely think you probably did. So thank you for listening all the way through our conversation today. A lot of great insights for careers, even outside of supply chain operations, manufacturing, and all the different components that go into getting you just about anything you use or eat on a daily basis. So I really appreciate it. Darren, thank you so much for your time and your great insights here on Following the Gong.
1: Yeah, thank you, Sean. I appreciate your time. I appreciate the opportunity And uh, thank you everyone for listening to this. Hopefully you find some valuable insights in this and maybe we can connect.
0: thank you scholars for listening and learning with us today we hope you will take something with you that will contribute to how you shape the world this show proudly supports the Shrier honors college emergency fund benefiting scholars experiencing unexpected financial hardship you can make a difference at raise.psu.edu forward slash please be sure to hit the relevant subscribe, like, or follow button on whichever platform you are engaging with us on today. You can follow the college on Instagram and LinkedIn to stay up to date on news, events, and deadlines. If you have questions about the show or are a Scholar alum who'd like to join us as a guest here on Following the Gone, please connect with me at scholaralumni at psu.edu. Until next time, please stay well. And we are...